Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarin Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth. Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirby Rosbach, and today we're talking about real estate. I'm thrilled to have a wonderful professor of real estate from the University of Denver, Glenn Miller with us today, and he's going to share more about his real estate market model that he uses to evaluate and monitor all the changes and shifts that are happening within the real estate markets. I'm so appreciative of your time today and can't wait to learn more about your model. But also, Glenn, let's just start about with your background because it's impressive and shares so much about how you got to develop this model. Sure. Yep. And then let me go ahead. I'm going to bring up my uh, screen now uh, and and share that. Um, so I've actually been in the real estate field for 47 years, an easy number to remember because that's also how long I've been married to my wife. Um, uh, as as uh, Kirby said, I'm a professor at the University of Denver. Uh, we have the second oldest real estate program in the country. Uh, just behind University of Wisconsin. We started in 1938. I'm also a visiting professor at Harvard. I'll, I'll actually be there next week in their executive program. And I've guest lectured now at 43 different universities around the world. Um, and basically most of the time on my market cycle research that I'm so well known for. At the same time, I'm a type A personality. I've got uh, uh, undergrad degree in MBA and a PhD actually in real estate but I've also worked in the field. I started my career as a uh, loan analyst at a bank and realized that builders made a lot of money. So I was a home builder for a number of years, worked at uh, Prudential Real Estate Investors in 1990. They were the largest uh, investor in real estate in the country at that time and also advised to all the major pension funds and institutions, as you probably all know, CalPERS or California Public Employees Retirement System is the largest a pension plan in the U.S. and um, of their uh, 450 billion, I think they're at about uh, a little uh, about 400 plus billion in uh, in real estate investments as well, and then a number of other places. Uh, but uh, basically, two jobs uh, for the past uh, plus 30 years or so. And uh, the main research that I do is in and why clicking there we go. Um, well, the main research that I do is, is in real estate market cycles, and I believe that market cycles basically follow the economy, real estate market cycles follow the economy, and uh, there's three drivers of demand. First of all, demand. Population in the United States keeps growing. We're at uh, uh, growing at a rate of about 3 million people a year, and to put that into perspective, for real estate, that means we need to build a complete city the size of Denver, Colorado, to give a people a place to eat, eat sleep, shop, work, play, pray, store stuff, etc. Um, the economy grows. We always look at GDP. And here, I just went back to give you a perspective on where we are. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, the economy was growing at an average rate of 3.2% GDP. 
then we had the Great Recession. After that, be, between the Great Recession and the COVID recession, we're growing at three point or 2.3%. Uh, and then going forward, um, you know, the forecast is for only about a 1.9% growth for, um, you know, so just a slower growing economy um, going forward. Uh, but the number one thing that drives demand for real estate really is employment growth. And here you can see that um, it was 1.3 um, pre the Great Recession, 1.4 between the Great Recession and COVID. And then, uh, you know, we're now looking at less than half of that at 0.6% going forward. And that's really a case of just simple math. Um, we're going to have more baby boomers like me retiring than millennials coming into the workforce. Um, and so and so the growth rate is just slowing down. But it's still positive. And every time we have, uh, and again, uh, every, every time we have someone get a job, they need a place to, uh, to work, to eat, to play, to shop, to live, et cetera. And that's what drives uh, demand for real estate. Um, on the um, cost side, um, two things to worry about inflation and inflation was two six uh, back uh, pre the Great Recession. It dropped to an amazingly low 1.8 average uh, between the Great Recession and COVID and going forward. And this is, by the way, the Congressional Budget Office numbers. They're looking at averaging 2.5. And of course, the Fed says they want to have inflation be down at 2%. Uh, talking with Mark Zandi, Moody's top economist, who's been a longtime friend, he said, you know, maybe it's time that we consider uh, resetting that number and say, you know, maybe inflation ought to be running or like three, in which case uh, the Federal Reserve would probably stop raising interest rates. And then, of course, the big one, interest rates. Uh, real estate is such a large asset that is typically financed. We use a 10-year treasury, which is the um, risk-free rate uh, here in the United States, uh, where you're pretty well guaranteed you're never going to lose your money. And uh, uh, back pre the Great Recession, it was 5% average. And then between the Great Recession and um, uh, the COVID recession, it was 2.4. And going forward, the Congressional Budget Office average is looking like it is going to be in the 3.8% uh, range. So uh, somewhat different from that standpoint. And uh, I think the good news is that if we go back in history, here's both GDP and employment growth. You can see that expansionary periods are typically fairly long, five to 10 years on average, and recessions are typically very short, uh, less than one year to maybe a year and a half. And of course, the COVID recession being the worst one that we've seen. And the forecast, again, is for things to move forward at, at a more moderate rate than they have been in the past. Um, so the three main uh, investment categories out there really are uh, stocks, bonds, and real estate. And when I talk about real estate, I'm talking about income producing real estate. I didn't use the word commercial because I had apartments in there, uh, as opposed to residential home ownership real estate. And of course, everybody's got a house, um, but that's a use asset, just like your car. And if it goes up in value, good for you. But if you sell it and buy a house of equal utility and location, you're going to spend the same money. So it's really not something that um, you live on you live in your house or houses. Um, from a standpoint of um, the, 
the bond market, most people think that bonds are the safe bet, good place to be. But the problem is that uh, what we've had is over the past 30 years, we've had bond rates going from uh, the 10-year treasury at 15% in 81 down to an all-time low of 0.6% during COVID and uh, now going forward, looking at it, that 3.8% rate. Um, and while the average yield, as you see there, the middle line at 5.8% for, for bonds over the last 70 years um, looks good, we, we aren't even there yet. Um, but the average total return is 8.6 because as interest rates go down, bond values go up. However, go look at the start of this graph and from 1953 uh, forward, while again, the average yield um, was 5.8, the average return on bonds between 53 and 73 was 1.9 and 53 and 81 when it peaked was 3.9 because as interest rates go up, bond values fall. I personally have gone to a zero allocation of bonds uh, just because of this and replaced it with real estate because of the income producing characteristics of real estate. And if we look at, again, the size of these asset classes, you've got stocks, bonds, and real estate. Commercial real estate makes up about 20% of that investable universe. And if we look at institutional investors, they typically have a, a range of five to 20% uh, invested in uh, commercial income producing real estate in their portfolios. Uh, CalPERS that I just talked about, they're currently at 14%. California State Teachers Association, the second largest, just increased their allocation last year from 14 to 16%. Um, so again, my research has been in market cycles for a, lot of, a long time. Two parts to the cycle, a physical cycle, which is demand and supply for real estate, that drives occupancy and if occupancies are going up rents are going to go up and occupancy increase plus rent increase gives me the income side of real estate if you will and the second part of this talk about the um, uh, prices of real estate and where they're going so the research study that i did that uh, that i again lecture on all over the place about um, is that real estate goes through a cycle just like the economy you've got a recovery an expansion a hyper supply and a recession phase. And my research between 1968 and 1997 showed that when you're in recovery, you start with negative rent growth because when you have too much of any product, what do you do? Drop the price. It then picked up and got positive at the long-term average in the middle there, the dotted line at 0.6. You can see a 4% increase in real estate. That was actually the average rate of inflation during that time. Then, um, <clears throat> You see in the uh, green square there, the growth phase, that uh, rent growth uh, got really strong and hit uh, a peak of 12.5% near the peak. And then it starts to slow down or decelerate. It's still positive and pretty good in the hyper supply phase when we're building slightly more than we need and then goes low and negative again in the recession phase. Uh, updated the study recently uh, for the last 20 years and you can see almost identical results with again, the uh, highest rate of uh, rent growth happening at the peak of the cycle. So if you know where a city is in its cycle, that is really helpful. And what I do is I look at demand, which comes from, again, uh, employment growth and people leasing space to use and supply. And here shows the uh, average percent growth in supply over the last number of decades. And you can see it uh, moving up and down with the economic cycles 
and uh, more recently, basically since uh, uh, the end of the COVID recession, you see that the two that are running higher than the 2% line are apartments and um, industrial space. Um, and we'll again now talk about the individual property types separately. So uh, office right now, as everybody probably knows, biggest jump ball in real estate. Um, how much office do we need? We definitely need some office. The question is exactly how much and do we have too much if people are working at home? Uh, I think we're, it's gonna take us a decade to really sort through all of that and figure it out. But um, you, you see here the occupancy cycle in blue and then the rent growth cycle in red and the two correlate very highly. So if rent's growing, uh, so if occupancies are growing, rents are growing, and um, a good correlation there. Um, I'll save uh, any kind of questions for that. So what I do is I look out, and this is the first quarter of 2024 forecast. You can see that the markets are all over the board. And the main reason for that is that we actually had a nice, strong growing economy. We were at the point of needing to build some new office space, most of it being in downtowns. And in the downtowns, <clears throat> you have a, um, it takes a long time. We're talking about uh, from a, there's a piece of land I wanna build on, getting it planned, permitted, approved, and built seven to eight years. So we have a bunch of new space coming on in many markets across the country, and that creates some oversupply. Uh, the good news is for these builders is the new space is what's in demand. Uh, really nice high quality space that attracts employees to want to come back to the office. The lower class B and C space uh, is what is really uh, vacant at this point and having problems. Um, when we look at industrial, you'll see that we're at the highest rate of occupancy that we have ever seen in industrial space. The Amazon effect is still going. And while you may have heard some headline news that Amazon was uh, letting go of some of the uh, leases that they had put together or putting uh, properties they were building themselves on the market recently, that was because if we looked at internet sales, um, pre-COVID, it went from eight to nine to 10 to 11 to 12% of sales over that five-year period. And then it jumped to 18% during COVID. That's a 50% increase. So. Amazon went, wow, we, we need to get going here and uh, and and really uh, expand. But post-COVID, it dropped back to 12.5% and went back on its normal trajectory. So uh, I think the good news there is that a lot of retailers who also, to be competitive, have to have that uh, uh, warehouse space were able to finally uh, uh, get a hold of some of it. And uh, now that construction costs are a lot higher, um, the amount of new industrial space has been cut down. So industrial is one of the, has been the top performing property type over the past five years and should be number one or two here over the next, uh, you know, five years or so. So if we look at industrial, you see um, better than half the markets at their peak occupancy level, which means they can continue to raise rents. And the ones that are in hyper supply are there only because of a lot of new space coming online that, uh, um, you know, hasn't been leased up yet. If we look at apartments, you see that uh, the apartment occupancy uh, has uh, again followed the cycles and post-COVID bounced to its highest occupancy level that we've seen, but also the highest rent growth that we've seen. Tons of new apartments being built across the United States, especially in downtowns, because that's where millennials want to live and work. Um, 
And uh, when we got this uh, big spike post-COVID in rents, and the average U.S. was up 11.5%, whereas the, the most popular and highest growth cities like Austin, Texas, and Denver, Colorado, they were growing at 25%. And now someone coming back, and quick example, one of the people I worked with at uh, Black Creek Group, she had been living downtown in her very nice little 500 square foot efficiency apartment in the newest building in town with every amenity under the sun um, and three block walk to work. COVID hit, all those amenities are shut down. She's working from her bed. So she and three friends go rent a house in the suburbs. Um, that ends, she comes back downtown, goes back to the same place. Can I have my apartment back? Yep. And now the rent's 2,500 bucks, a 25% increase. That's a little hard to swallow. So she doubles up with a friend and now they've got a two bedroom for three grand a month. Um, but that's, uh, that took two households and combined them together. So we're seeing what they call a decline in household formation because of that. That I believe goes away. Um, over the next couple of years. And you can see here that pretty much every um, apartment market I expect to be in the hyper supply phase um, just because of that uh, doubling up and slowing of household formation. But the good news for apartments, and again, to me, it's one of the top two property types to own, is that um, the National Association of Realtors just updated their study. We are 6.5 million housing units short in the United States today. Uh, and that's both ownership and rental uh, because we cut down production of single family homes after the great recession to almost half of the previous production level of 2 million a year. And so um, there, there is a pent up demand uh, for housing, both rental and, and home ownership in, in the U S today. Uh, and so that will bring uh, uh, everything. I think pretty much every market here back into the growth phase sometime within the next two years. Retail is probably gonna be the biggest surprise to everybody. Retail is at the absolute highest occupancy level since we've been collecting data. Everybody goes, yeah, but retail is being killed by Amazon. We go, well, yes, in some cases, but that also meant that we weren't building a lot of new retail. And every time you build uh, 3,000 new rooftops, that's either an apartment unit or a house, you need a new grocery store. And so um, as things expand, we need more space. And all the retailers that were considered essential, like uh, home goods and building materials, their sales went through the roof. So they started building more stuff. Um, all the older crappy retail, if your state has uh, legalized marijuana, gets used for marijuana. Um, and we also converted over the last decade, a lot of retail into office space, apartments, and now they're converting into close-in warehouse. I had a student in my development class that took a downtown Denver office building and converted it into self-storage. So uh, low supply with moderate growth, and uh, the market's actually in, in good balance. Malls are recreating themselves, if you will, too. So interesting times, okay? So again, uh, most of the markets at their peak occupancy level 0.11 on the cycle with um, uh, a handful of them over the top just because of uh, new space kind of coming online in those markets. So let's now turn to the other side of uh, the return. Any return you ever get comes from both 
income and appreciation. And prices are driven by capital flows, as I'm sure you all know. When, uh, when the economy looks good and people think that uh, risk is going to be low, everybody piles into the stock market and prices go up. Uh, when the economy is bad, they pull out of the stock market and go into the bond market and bond prices go up and bond yields go down, unless the Federal Reserve is artificially pushing them up to slow us down. So same thing for real estate. When people come into real estate, they, uh, they invest into it and start to drive prices up. And if we looked at, again, income producing real estate, um, you will see that um, we have a, um, about a 22% uh, uh, of the investable universe is real estate versus bonds and equities. And if we look at capital flowing to real estate, you'll see that uh, it has gone uh, from about $20 billion back in 01 to $160 billion in 07, down to $15 billion a quarter in uh, 09 during the Great Recession, and then bouncing back up uh, over that 160 mark a number of times here over the last decade. And then the red line is the property price index, which peaked in 07, bottomed out just after the Great Recession, and then peaked uh, and, and peaked at the end of 2002. I'm now actually going to then uh, pop forward one and show you that the most recent one shows that we've had a 15% decline in real estate prices since the Federal Reserve started raising rates, uh, and really only since the start of, of this uh, uh, year, um, which means a potential buying opportunity. Okay, and we can break that down by property type, and you see that the highest property price increases came in manufactured housing or mobile homes, uh, followed by industrial, and then self storage, and then apartments, and everything else was somewhat moderate as, as far as their prices increases here since 2016. Um, and we typically look at and uh, express real estate prices based on cap rates or the cash on cash return or the bond yield. You can see back in 01, uh, cap rates were around 9%. Uh, in 07, they came down to about six and a half. During the Great Recession, they bounced back up to a little over eight. And then they slowly worked their way down to uh, 2000. 2002 down into the five to six and a half percent range and only since the beginning of this year have they started to move back up in other words property prices dropping meaning the yield you're going to get is going up a little bit uh, but what you have to realize is that we're in a lower interest rate environment and so when you say well i want to invest in real estate the question is how much more income am i going to get over the risk-free rate of a 10-year treasury. So the spread over treasuries, this graph shows you that we went from kind of a 4% average rate with the different property types, dropped to about 2% uh, in 07, bounced back up and is still running in the 4 to 5% range above 10-year treasury. So on a relative basis in today's lower interest rate environment, funny for me to say that, right? Uh, we, we are at a point with um, still real estate being an attractive investment. And finally, um, in my now 40 plus years in real estate, when I started, real estate was local, local buyer, local seller, local bank doing the financing. 1980s, the institutions got into real estate, all of a sudden we had national buyers, national sellers, 
national financing became available. In the 1990s, real estate got its first access to the public capital market, the stock market through REITs, and the bond market through CMBS or commercial mortgage-backed securities. But since the year 2000, real estate has gone global. And what you see here are transaction volumes from different countries. Uh, and what you see first is like the United States in 2002 invested $11.3 million into Germany, a 27% increase over the previous year. Number four, Germany came into the US with $5.6 billion, a small 1% decline from the previous year. Part of that could have been because of um, currency uh, uh, exchange rates. And I'd say that when people look at going to different countries, local knowledge is super important, but you add that new risk of, um, of uh, the uh, monetary exchange rate, uh, currency exchange rate into the formula as you're, as you're doing that. So um, fun example in 2019, top billing uh, to sell in the United States, highest price was a class A office in New York City, went for a 4% cap rate. In London, class A's were selling for a 2% cap rate. And in uh, Tokyo and Hong Kong, they're going for a 1% cap rate. So to a European investor, US looks like 50% off deal. And to an Asian investor, we look like a 75% off deal. So I believe that we'll continue to see strong capital flow from international buyers. They mainly go to the big major gateway cities um, and that will help support prices there. Then the institutional investors that were the main investors in those gateway cities move into the second tier markets like Denver and Austin, helping support those prices. And then other investors, family offices, et cetera, where they're not seen as great a yield, move potentially down into the third tier markets to uh, make those deals work. So my conclusion, Economic cycles can be long and short. Is it really a recession if GDP goes negative, but employment growth, employment stays positive, which is most likely with 11 million jobs needing to be filled out there? I'm guessing we're gonna get a negative GDP growth maybe in the third quarter, but again, positive employment growth, right? Um, real estate is demand supply driven, very local in nature. So you gotta know your city and what's going on, what industries are driving that growth. Uh, but supply is going to be slow. Uh, materials costs have gone up. Labor costs are up substantially. Labor is still hard to find in the construction business. Um, and so while we were in a growth phase in 2022, I think we're bouncing back and forth between that and the hypersupply phase here in 2023 and into 2024. On the financial side, capital flows drive prices. You got volatile stock market and rising interest rates. COVID was that black swan, now bank failures and who knows what's next that uh, creates, again, a, a difficult situation. But, you know, real estate is a long-lived asset that you're going to hold for many, many years and, uh, you know, learn how to work it through the cycles. Um, plus, the world is just awash in a lot of cash. Uh, U.S. savings rate used to be a trillion a year during COVID, four trillion that gave people a lot of extra savings to be able to buy houses and houses are still selling, which is amazing, um, and, and make investments. So that's coming. Uh, debt financing is getting harder and more conservative, but that actually helps um, uh, 
keep uh, keep people going when you did a 40% equity instead of a 20% equity into a deal. Um, and um, again, differentiate between home ownership and income producing real estate as you're thinking about real estate because they're really two totally separate markets. So with that, I will open it up and Kirby, you probably have some questions. Well, Glenn, this is, I mean, what a primer and thank you for going broad and pretty deep actually to give us a lot of good synopsis of the whole space. Tell us a little bit more about um, your real estate market cycle monitor, because I think it's important people know that you're ongoing, continue to do the research, continue to evaluate the opportunities out there and provide a lot of good um, data if you're still ongoing evaluating, trying to figure out where we are in the cycles. Right. Yeah. So um, I actually uh, post my uh, market cycle monitor report online. Here's uh, how you can get it at uh, du.edu slash burn school. Uh, and then my forecast report I do on a subscription basis. Uh, Kirby has that. And, you know, Kirby, you're welcome to share that with your clients. Um, it is a donation to our research fund of $1,000 a year if you'd like to get it directly. Um, and again, I come out with that every quarter because real estate data comes out every quarter. You can also find it at the uh, Family Office Real Estate Institute. Uh, it's in uh, their quarterly magazine. Well, real estate is the core asset and almost, I, I don't think I've ever met a family office that doesn't have um, real estate somewhere within their portfolio. And certainly I, I would say it's probably central casting to most investment focused family offices where it has a larger role to play. So I am so appreciative of your wisdom, Glenn, and then just the time to spend with you today, just learning more about your research, your contributions to the field, and also the complexity. We've got a lot of interesting nuances in our current markets. And um, I wish I could have a crystal ball to sort of see what's gonna happen with some of these global um, economic situations, uh, geopolitical situations. So I'm so grateful for your time today. This was an excellent podcast for our Chamber Learning. Great. Thank you very much, Kirby. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.